0: Hi, this is Scott Shaw, also known as the Turd, here to welcome you to the Heroes Home Base Podcast.
1: Hey, guys, this is Mark.
2: This is Rob. Hey, this is Rich. Welcome in to episode 46. Almost 50. Almost 50. Almost 50. I feel like I act surprised every episode now. Almost 50. (laughs) Right. So uh, we just celebrated the 4th of July. So uh, how was that, Mark? It was fine. Did I do anything
1: with the 4th of July? (laughs) Uh, No, I just, I went out, had a couple drinks, hung out. I was uptown Nice. in Matthew Matthew Rosenberg's Neck of the Woods. I was in Harlem. That was it. Just hung
2: out. We had our first real get-together in over, what, a year and a half? Yep. I'd say. It was good until both Rob's family and my family were ill last week. Yeah, it's been an awful six days. Like, I went to work one day last this past week. Yeah. It was I don't awful. know. I don't know. It was like a little... Ill with what? I just had like a... For me, it was like a 24-hour bug thing, like... uh Cole was sick first and then Lex was sick by the end of that day. And then I went to work and I'm just driving to work and then I'm like, Oh shit. So I got to work and got sick and went right back home. I can't say that that's the exact same experience that Rob's household had, but yeah. <laughs> no, Tuesday I uh, went to work after the 4th of July being off on that Monday and then just um, Elliot got sick um, and then I probably got sick an hour and a half later after work. And then I got sick in the middle of the night. And then he's been, it was just awful. It worked through Elliot, then Jensen got it in the night. And then Amelia got it like two days later and praying to God that Becky just stays healthy. Her super mom powers are, are holding yeah. strong. So yeah. super it's just been, the show quitter super mom powers are definitely in effect. She's good. But yeah, so that's been my life in the last week. But I have been, Um I finally, before the 4th of July, the week before, finally went to the Ogre and spent my gift card from Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Only um, um, seven. um, I haven't opened it yet, but I got the latest lock and key that I started, obviously, months ago in the midst of the early days of COVID. And I picked up. Mr. Jenkins, Batman, Jacqueline Hyde, and I'm nice. uh, two-thirds of the way through that. So How's that going? It's enjoyable. I He definitely has a unique style, but uh, again, I think just knowing, like speaking to him and having that, I keep referencing that episode, but it, it, I just really enjoyed our conversation with him. I, I kind of look at, and I appreciate some of his work a little bit more. So comic existence. Nice. When I'm not bowing to the porcelain Buddha. Well. Let's dig right into the events that took place just this morning. Today was the day of, I'll, I'll just call it Q Day. Today was the day you could buy New York City Comic Con tickets for 2021. According to their queue site, it was 2019. So we all were on in the queue for what was it? An hour, An hour and a half. half. Hour and a half. And I don't think I've waited that long before, but with uh, our past episode we talked about some of the uh, attendance guidelines and you know some of the things that were going on well, i'm s- still surprised that they're even putting on the event but the three of us were not able to secure saturday passes which was our goal but by the time friday and sunday were 50% sold out mark's prayers were answered and rob got in the queue <laughs> the very second yeah so we were able to secure sunday tickets i i think this is my the first time i went with you guys in 16 i was just over the phone so i wasn't even trying to get in um but the last two times i've been the one getting in the queue this was just awful man and my theory is that it's the reduced capacity i actually think they're it's just they're not selling obviously the full you know, the full four day passes or three day passes, they're all single day passes, which I also think is strategic to recover some lost revenue. But um the message on their Facebook page, I mean, you guys we were reading them. It, it was just, there were a lot of server issues. So I think my honest opinion that it's first come first serve, I think is complete bullshit. I think it is. You click on your link that they email you and hopefully it well, works. Well, first of all, let me, uh, Mark and I clicked on our link at 10 AM right at the time you could and we didn't get we didn't even get into the queue until it was like 1002. Yeah. so that pissed me off because it kept saying come back later, no bitch, it's 10 o'clock right So sorry, go ahead. No, I think it I, and I'm not a computer expert. I'm just speculating, but I really think it is whatever server your link connects to is what got you in the queue faster. Like, I don't think it because they were like, oh, we've got, you know, a pharma server. But there were a lot of issues. It was awful. I think, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. Let's say, let's say there's two servers and we're all sitting on server two, which is sucking ass. And everybody else that's getting tickets right at 10 o'clock or shortly after, I wouldn't be surprised if people that are later in the queue are getting their spots on server one. And the people in server two are just like, what is happening?
1: Like well, it was, a clear, it, was, it
2: was a clear indication that they didn't have their shit together when inside the queue it said to, rules you know. about 2019 badges I'm like, and then once people were making comments about that then they went in and deleted it and it refreshed <laughs> yeah, like, you guys <laughs> didn't even update this for 2020 if you were doing any planning for 2020 you know what i mean like i know they they 2020 didn't happen but guys seriously like you should be pinging your servers and testing all sorts of stuff since it's historically hard to get tickets for Comic-Con. But, man, it was – and I heard in the comments people were like, I was able to buy my tickets, but Show Clicks or whatever the f- hell their name is, like, their website kept crashing so people couldn't, like, Finalize share – right they couldn't share their the email addresses for the people that were fan verified like there were a whole bunch of issues so
1: well no you know we we were frustrated we were frustrated in the moment we took it took us an hour and a half all three of us got up you know and we got it we got our sunday passes we wanted saturday passes we didn't get the saturday passes but we got our sunday pass the very first time i ever went was on a sunday sundays aren't so bad but you know the three of us We got our game plan. We're going to go on a Sunday. You got your flights. You got your plane tickets. And I can't, you know, I'm counting down the days because that is my absolute favorite weekend of the whole year. And I can't wait to have my brothers with me.
2: Absolutely. And we will definitely be doing a pre-con recording, a highlights at con, and then we'll do a whole post special yeah, we'll do NY... a squat. We'll do a NY... squat segment. We're squatting in NY... the corner here. NYCC uh, podcast episode for sure. Okay, so this episode is going to be jam full. So we're not going to do any of our normal um, segments. No riches pull because I'm backed up with all kinds of issues to go over. Um, we're not going to do a who would win because home base communications is back. Mark, why don't you tell us what's going on?
1: We've got a third-time guest, I believe. Mr. Matthew Clickstein is back with uh, with his special guest, Mr. Scott Shaw, one of the originators of San Diego Comic-Con. So he has plenty of stories to tell, and we've got them both for the podcast this episode.
2: It's really kind of a uh, home-based communication, but also a promo to Matthew's new XM podcast, which we've dropped on here before, Comic-Con Begins. So if you have... If you have not checked this out, it's uh, the fourth episode drops tomorrow. It's coming out every Monday. I believe it's a six part first of its kind, really, at least for me listening to document documentary uh, podcast yeah. and it is really, really good. They did a lot of work on it. They spent the whole pandemic last year, putting this thing together and it is really, I can't, I cannot stress highly enough about how great this thing is. And for me, Doing our show and all the other podcasts that i listen to on a regular basis like it's been a while since i've come across a uh, podcast that i'm super excited to uh listen to and uh and this is it comic con begins you definitely need to be checking it out without further ado here's matthew clickstein and the one and only great scott shaw so on this episode, we got Mr. Clickstein back. I think this is a three-peat for you, sir. I
3: think so. Yeah. At least at least yeah. a three-peat.
2: <laughs> three-peat. We brought a really good friend, Scott Shaw. And uh, we're really kind of just doing a quick uh home-based communication and trying to promote the really cool podcast, uh, Comic-Con Begins, which I'll let uh I'll let the master himself, Matt, give the give a quick pitch, put you on the spotlight. Go. Dun dun
3: dun. <laughs> Oh, well, thanks for having me on again, guys. I really appreciate it. And thanks, uh, Scott Shaw, uh, for joining us, too. Uh, thanks, we're all Scott. big fans. And um, one of the reasons that Scott is on this podcast episode with us is because he's one of the featured interviewees for the new audio documentary podcast series Comic Con Begins uh, that I created and that was produced by uh, fine folks at SiriusXM and Stitcher. For those who don't know, SiriusXM now owns Stitcher, as they own many other uh, audio companies and platforms out there now. So one of that's your nice favorite things work- thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah one of, one of the nice things about working with a big company is uh, they've got a lot of a uh, lot of fingers and a lot of network. So that was good. Um, but yeah, so Comic Con begins is exactly what it sounds like. It is the first and definitely most extensive oral history of Comic Con. Uh, told by the people who actually made it all happen back in the early days, such as Scott Shaw, who turns, I think, 107 next week. Is that right, Scott? <laughs> is, that, is that how old <laughs> um But uh, no, seriously, uh, the, the quick elevator pitch is that it is the oral history of Comic-Con, told by the people who made it all happen, We interviewed a little more than 30 of the surviving foundational members of Comic-Con. A lot of people don't realize this, but it started all the way back in 1970. Um, So we were able to get in touch with a lot of folks through an old friend of mine, uh, Wendy All, who also worked as our historical consultant. I had become friendly with her a few years ago uh, when I was working on a book project, and we just stayed in touch, and then at a point um i realized it would be good to work with her on this project because she too was one of the early foundational members of the comic-con uh group so to speak and uh, she introduced me to everybody and told them all hey i'm a guy that they can talk to about all this uh we spent more than the last year on this project interviewing everyone remotely um folks are all over the country and even world uh dave Scrogi is uh, was in scotland when we interviewed him for example nice. um and uh we put it all together. I had a fantastic team over at SiriusXM. My executive producer was Rob Schulte. Uh, producer was Christopher Tyler. Uh, we had a really great mixing guy named James Billadu, who also did a few other things with the project. Everyone kind of wore multiple hats. Um, and then an old friend of mine, Max DiVincenzo did the original music, which really adds a lot to it. So it, it's not a typical podcast what people are used to like this kind of thing where it's, it's folks chatting um informally it, it really is a documentary i mean we made it like we were making a film documentary and we took it really seriously it was a ton of work i it was can imagine very, yeah especially over this last year with everything else going on but we just we knew we had to do it we were very excited about it and frankly getting to spend a lot of time talking to people like scott shaw and some of the others that we spoke to was just fantastic and it was a great learning experience for us as well and of course um for those in the cheap seats we wanted to make sure we got uh, some of the kind of uber geeky celebrities involved as well. So we brought on people like a few ringers, uh, Kevin Smith, the Russo brothers, Neil Gaiman, Frank Miller, Tim Seeley, Sergio Aragones, who was actually quite involved in Comic-Con in the early years. Also, he kind of walked the line between celebrity, but also someone who was involved in Comic-Con in the early years. Uh, Trina Robbins, Maggie Thompson, Felicia Day, Bruce Campbell was great. Bruce Campbell was a lot of fun. Scott Ackerman who turns out that Scott Ackerman is a huge uh, geek and nerd all the way back to that. He actually used to go to Comic-Con when he was 15, back in the 80s. And um, I don't know how many people know this, but he actually writes for comics and has over the years. He's done some X-Men, some Spider-Man. He had so many fantastic stories. We really just thought he'd be a cool person to talk to. We knew he was somewhat geeky. We had no idea how deep his love and passion for Comic-Con goes and comics and sci-fi. So that was fantastic. But that's what the show is um i believe the third episode just went up we have six episodes each episode kind of talks about a different part of comic-con history overall there's a beginning middle and end uh, narrative to it but it's kind of each part is its own little segment they're all about an hour long and you can listen to them on any audio platform that's out there um and uh yeah we're going to be running weekly episodes uh, right through comic-con so that's what it is comic-con begins definitely check it out
2: Dude, excellent. I really, like you said, it's more like a docu documentary movie. And I was literally listening to the first two. And I'm like, man, this took a lot of work. Man, this audio took (laughs) like, cause I do ours, but like I can do ours in two days. And I'm like, this must've been like massive scale. And it really is like the first podcast that I've listened to ever like this. And I love it. I'm just going to tell you awesome, awesome stuff. Well, thank you. It was very like,
1: much like a documentary, very much so.
2: Yeah,
3: thank you. And, and again, I really... Also,
0: it's also a mosaic, I think. It has a texture to it.
3: Very, very much.
0: And, uh, and and very few of us are actually identified. And after a while, you kind of realize, okay, that's the professor and that's the wise guy and that's the uh, the sci-fi person. And, you know, everybody kind of has a specialty, The the people that kind of stand out at least. But it really it kind of is an evening thing where people have no really idea. I think we're the only ones that really recognize each other that are listening to it. Yeah. So it kind of evens out everybody's opinion. I mean, they didn't talk to anybody that was just a fake or somebody that just happened to go into a couple of times. It was people that really were there on the committee. And there are so, it's like Rashomon. Because... You know, everybody differs on a lot of things and none of us are mad at each other. Some of us are kind of astonished at certain things, but it's like, okay, well, that was 50 years ago. Who cares?
3: If if I may, sorry, I do want to say real quick, just because I know this is something that's come up a little bit. And for anybody who's not familiar with, with the podcast, Comic-Con Begins, hasn't listened to it yet. Scott's right. Uh, we did have to make the decision of not necessarily identifying each person when they're talking. We do have a narrator who pops in every now and then with some uh, contextual material and the intros and outros e- each episode, Brink Stevens, who, among many other things, um, was also involved in Comic-Con in the early years, particularly with the Masquerade. And, uh, you know, so every now and then she'll, you know, explain who someone was or give a little bit of sort of <clears throat> extra contextual information. But yes, yeah, Scott's right. We don't say because it is very much, as he said, a mosaic, almost a collage. We have archival material. We have uh, commercials from from back in the day, clips from movies and things. We really did make it like a documentary. We just realized if we keep saying who each person is when they talk, because sometimes someone will talk for a few seconds and sometimes someone will talk for a minute. It just depends on their story and what they're saying. So we cut it all together in such a way that Scott's 100% right. We want it to be kind of leveled out so that whether you know who's, who's talking or not, what's important is it's the story of the con told by all these different people from all these different perspectives. And he's right. I mean, people contradict. That's the joy of an oral history. But for those who really do want to know who's talking, we A, list everyone's name in the show notes at the end of every episode uh, that everyone can check out. And B, just because I spent a lot of time on this, including uh, after the show had already started running because we were running out of time. I personally transcribed every episode with each person's name. So there's a full script that anyone could look at (laughs) to see who's talking. And so if that really is important for someone, they could definitely do that. We just felt like it would break up the organic flow and it would be clumsy. And it just wouldn't move as smoothly as we want it to. If every single time someone talks, it's Scott Shaw, bring Stevens, Jackie Estrada. It has caused a little bit of contention for some and we understand that, but we just felt like it was a choice we had to make and it was more important for us to put together an organic flowing narrative and everything coming together. And, and really Scott is right. I mean, that, we're not just saying that. We, we also did want to kind of level out everyone's opinions and we love that you can hear Kevin Smith, you can hear Neil Gaiman, and then you can hear someone like Bob rent or Wendy all, or someone whose name you might not be as familiar with. And they're all there at the same level. It, it really doesn't matter. you know. I would imagine most people would be able to recognize Neil Gaiman's voice. Um, and certainly yeah. Sergio Aragones stands out a little bit for obvious reasons, but um, we wanted it to be like, it's just, it's the story of the con told by the people who made it some of these uh, passionate celebrities who we brought in, um, who had some great things to say about the con. so um you know hopefully that still works and you know it's just a choice that we decided to make so
2: right I I noticed it pretty clearly in the first episode like I was thinking in my head if I was watching this would that name tag show up at the bottom of the screen right now but honestly after two-thirds the way through the first episode I kind of the way Scott described it that mosaic like I kind of started to get immersed in what you right. were doing. And I was That's less to really bothered by it. So Yeah, I, we
3: wanted to make yeah. it immersive. We really wanted to put you there. And we were very lucky, along with the fact that people like Scott and Brink and Wendy and so many others talked to us and talked to us for so long. I mean, some of these interviews went for two or three hours. We did sure. pickups later. It really was a lot of work. I mean, we ended up with almost 70 hours of material just of the stuff that we gathered. But we were also gifted some great archival stuff from people like Mike Towery and Alan Light, who actually had crystal clear recordings from the first Comic-Con in 1970 and the 1975 con. And that gave us Will Eisner, it gave us Stan Lee, it gave us Jack Kirby, it gave us Ray Bradbury. It gave us some incredible material, not to mention just stuff in between panels and some of the chitter chatter and the audience talking. So we wanted to incorporate that in and really put people there. I mean, there are sections of the show Um, where you're just suddenly, you know, at the con in 1970 or 75. And yeah, you might not know who's talking and you might not know exactly what's going on, but it gives you a sense of the flow of things. And that was very important for us. So we might have someone talking about the importance of underground comics and the importance of individualism in underground comics and kind of breaking new barriers. And then all of a sudden you hear Jack Kirby talking at the 1970 con about the importance of individuality in comics as well. And we just said, look, we don't have to say every time that it's Jack Kirby, yeah. you know, A, it would break up the flow. And B, as you just said, I, I agree with Scott. I think if you put the time and patience in to really listen to the podcast, this is not something to have on in the background while you're doing other things. Sure, If you really engage with it the way you would like a movie, I agree hundred percent with Scott. And I think it's one of the best compliments we receive that even if you don't know who Scott is when you hear him, you'll recognize his voice as, yeah, Mr. Wise Guy. You'll recognize Roger <laughs> Friedman as the professor. You'll recognize- Very likely no one
0: will know who Scott Shaw is. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the one thing I, that I noticed too, you go to a convention, you're looking around, there's a million people, you don't know who anybody is. And unless, and nowadays you more or less can recognize creators by their faces, but back then, You didn't know who anybody was you knew by their signature or their style or you know and so you could be walking past ray bradbury well maybe not him because his face is on the back of every book he ever published but you know what i mean it's like you were you were walking among greatness often and had no idea that you were right next to somebody that you would have kissed their feet if you knew who they were you know
2: that sounds like you're paying homage to that experience there matt the way that you've cut this
3: I mean, yeah, I, 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 this is not the first time I've answered this question. And in fact, as some of you might know, you know, same kind of thing happened with my Nickelodeon book years ago, my Mm -hmm. first big project people, some people said, Oh, the fact you don't know who each person is in the book, even though I have a glossary in the back with everyone's name and what they did. (laughs) um, You know, it was, it was the same kind of question and it was the same answer, which was, I didn't want to disrupt the flow. In the case of the Nickelodeon book, too, admittedly, something a lot of people don't understand, there was a word count issue, and I just thought I would much rather have more material and more stories than saying who each person is every time, because that really adds up with the word count, and the book would have been much shorter otherwise. So there was that technicality issue there, too. But I think that's how an old history should be. And if you give it the time and the energy, and you start kind of figuring out who people are, I think that's some of the fun of it. And I really appreciate what Scott said. he's, he's said that before also, which is, yeah, we want it to feel like you're... At the con, we wanted there to be this kind of explosion in grand Central Station feeling to the whole thing. And like I said, you're hearing stuff from the '70 con, stuff from the '75 con. You're hearing a clip from 2001 Space Odyssey. You're hearing Trina Robbins talking about you know what she thinks about Alan Moore and Watchmen. You're hearing Scott Shaw talking about dressing up as a living turd and blowing up uh, toilets mm-hmm. or whatever it is his favorite part of the whole series. Uh, but no, but I mean that we wanted it to have mine that,
1: too.
0: Yeah,
3: <laughs> we wanted it to have that feeling. <laughs> but we didn't want it to be so freewheeling that you would get lost, you know, like, like as Scott said, and as you just said, we wanted there to be the feeling of you're kind of at a con, but you do have, you know, maps at cons, you do have signs. And we worked very, very hard. We really did take it seriously. Like this was a six part, you know, film or video documentary. We worked very, very hard on the scripts. I mean, we did have scripts um, and and I and the editor producers like Rob Schulte and Chris Tyler, as I mentioned, we would be bouncing back and forth versions of the scripts with all the selects and everything in it, and then we would say what we wanted here and what we wanted there. It was really like this year-long ping pong game that we were playing. And I mean, I'm I'm not kidding when I say right up until the night before launch, we were making final tweaks to some things, and you know, constantly doing that kind of stuff. And once again. I have to give it to um, our audio mix guy, James Billadu, who did a fantastic Excellent. job of cleaning everything up, making it sound so polished. I'm really, really proud of how it came out and you know the craftsmanship of it and everything. So um, we wanted to work very hard to make sure that even though it might seem a little bit chaotic at first, once you start kind of figuring out what's going on, I think it becomes a lot of fun. And by episode two or three, you kind of know who everyone is, You kind of know the lingua fraqua of of the whole scene. Okay, what the El Cortez Hotel is, why that's important, who Ken Kruger was. We, you know, it's, we're building, we're building, building, building um, on everything. And so, yeah, you know, I don't want to point any fingers, but it would be very easy for someone to listen to it for 20 minutes and go, I have no idea what's going on and turn it off. Well, put a little time and energy into it. You know, give it give it some time, be patient. And as I said, I, I can't say enough. This is not a podcast to listen to while you're, you know, playing video games or messing around on your phone. <laughs> like this, this is something for a long car drive. I mean, think yeah. about it like an audiobook. You really I've told people yeah, to think about it one. like an audiobook. Yeah. And so if people give it that reverence and respect. I have no other words for it. I think they'll get a lot out of it, and they'll experience yes. what Scott has experienced and a number of other people we've talked to It sounds like you guys. like Just give it some time. Treat it like an audiobook. Treat it like you're watching a six-part documentary that's audio, because that, that was our intention. That was what we were trying to do.
2: Just to be clear, we have the human turd on the show right now. <laughs> Can... <laughs> that just was <laughs>
0: heard i'm the human there are two differences
2: <laughs> please okay we're gonna like uh, this is spoilers but can you just real quick go over that story because oh, i lost my spoiler. shit when i heard that that was the best
0: <laughs> well if you lost it i wound up with it um, <laughs> here's here's what happened um i at the time, they were reprinting a lot of Marvel uh, monster comics from the 1960s, early 60s. And I noticed that the same way that DC used to exploit gorillas a lot and dinosaurs on their covers, Marvel seemed to like using what they called mud monsters and muck monsters. And I'm, even a kid, I'm thinking, why would anybody be scared of a monster made out of mud? And the older I got, I realized, no, this is supposed to represent shit. <laughs> and because that's the one thing people are going to run away from more than anything. Right? <laughs> that smell. And they did a lot of them. I mean, you'd be surprised how many. So I thought, I'm going to come. And by the way, by that time, they also had man thing, yep. swamp thing, and the heap had been revived at skywalled. So I thought, you know, it's about time to do an underground version of this. So I did the turd. And the turd was my first published comic story. Ken Kruger, one of the co-founders of Comic-Con and a a great guy, a a, a true outlaw. He ran bookstores that survived on pornography for years, had 14 (laughs) different stores because he was always the head of the police. But he was one of the guys that was the know-how guy to help start Comic-Con. And anyway, he put together this underground comic. And I think it was mainly to give John Pound and I, another cartoonist in San Diego who's since become a very expert uh, illustrator and fine artist, but it was our first gigs. We both worked for the same school paper in San Diego, Crawford. I, John followed me up and we used to ink each other's stuff and work back and forth. But this was our first big chance. I think we got paid $10 a page or something like that. But, I went I decided a few like a, a year later I, I was at a convention and I I'd, I'd been to a big science fiction convention in 68 and I realized a lot of these people are spending a whole year making these incredibly complicated costumes and I thought what if it looked like something you made in five minutes? <laughs> and uh so anyway, I was at this convention. It wasn't at the San Diego Con. It was at a show, uh, the World Science Fiction Convention near uh LAX in 1972. And there was a smart and final where you can get food in bulk. So I bought 18 pounds of chunk style peanut butter. Oh my
2: god, 18 pounds. I got
0: a plumber's helper, and just to make it realistic some toilet paper, and some corn niblets. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Corn niblets were the thing that really sold it, except nobody could see it from that distance. It just just helped my performance. Anyway, I lathered myself up with that stuff, and a friend of mine dressed up in some really weird suit he bought at his thrift shop. And we went on stage, and he announced me as the turd from the planet Uranus. And I mean, it was as juvenile (laughs) as you could get, right?
2: But I'm laughing.
0: (laughs) Well, afterward, you know, everybody's milling around and meeting everybody in costume. I never really planned for the fact that human body temperature will melt peanut butter. (laughs) And pretty soon I'm leaving a trail of it. And I can't see worth a damn because I've got a... I had cut up pantyhose to have over my head so I could somehow screen it so I could see through. Well, it all melted down in front of my eyes, so I'm like blindly, and I'm running into these women dressed as you know some ornate science fiction character, and I'm just leaving a whole smear of peanut butter down <laughs> her side, and she's like screaming. And it just it didn't go well at all. But you know what's funny? I wound up in the LA. Uh, uh, the LA Times, all the underground newspapers, because it was exactly what journalists and photographers think. This is how those crazy guys really are. They're, they'll, they'll cover themselves in shit, you know? <laughs> so I I went back to my room anyway, and I, I washed it all off. It took an awful lot of soap, and I think I went through a whole giant jar of Johnson's baby shampoo. But- the next morning, the maid comes in, and I felt really bad, <laughs> I apologize. He says, "She says, honey, I've seen a lot worse than that." And I'm thinking, like, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so anyway, a couple of weeks later, convention's over. Uh, by the way, I did LSD the day before I turned. <laughs> you never <there. laughs> told me that part. <laughs> <or convention>, anyway, <laughs> but about two weeks later, I find out that the guy is the head of the convention is looking for me and he's pissed and I don't know why. And then I find out the peanut butter apparently stopped up all the plumbing and the plumbing exploded all through the hotel. Thousands of dollars worth of damage. And they seem to think like I was some sort of, you know, like terrorist or something. No, I I was really into Hunter Thompson and, and, you know, gonzo behavior and, And uh, Dada art and underground comics. So it was like, no, I just want to be outrageous. I never meant to upset or or cause any trouble. They never did find me. So (laughs) now I can stand in a crowd where people are talking about it because they actually did a replication of it at the World Science Fiction Convention a couple of years ago, except somebody dressed as the turd, but it was all fabric. So nothing got on anybody. But I've actually been in knots of fans talking about crazy things. And I can actually say, can you believe some asshole covered himself with peanut butter? And nobody <laughs> remembers it was me, fortunately. So, <laughs> now it's all over, though. And now And The
2: gig I've, is up now.
0: I've spread the word. You
3: know? Literally.
2: <laughs> I'm just imagining you doing yeah. that at, like, Comic-Con now. Like, you... <laughs> You know what he, I don't thousands mean, of have people. anything
0: on me to be disgusting now. <laughs> I could just take my shirt off and people would run away scared.
2: Scott's like not the chunky, just the extra creamy now. Well, just,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm definitely extra chunky.
2: <laughs> All right, awesome. so let's let's learn a little bit more about you, Scott. Let's get to know you a little bit. So, can you I, tell was, us you
0: know, more than you'd like. To. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, uh, I was doing my research, my due diligence, my homework. So animator, cartoonist, right?
0: I've never been an animator. I've worked in... in animation a lot. But animation, animating itself is too, you know, I have to concentrate too much on just, I oh, don't okay, I need to move the elbow a little. I, I like the bigger pictures. So I've worked as a producer and a director and storyboard guy and a writer, all that, all, all the easy stuff.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just saying, I was going through some of the stuff you worked on Muppet Babies, Garfield and Fringe, Simpsons. Stuff shaped our childhood, man. Like, I remember... all animated
0: overseas, by the way. So <laughs> it's
2: ruined for me. I can't ever watch it again. No, you know, dude, but like...
0: that just kills me. People go, don't destroy my childhood. It's over. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> it's over. Like, well, you know, it's gone, folks. I mean... That's right. Can't get it back think about nope. me, I barely
2: remember no, I actually remember way
0: too well. Stop the LSD. Oh no, long before that I was weird.
2: <laughs> no, I just thought that those were some of the that that's pretty cool that you were involved in that, and that was such a, a strong point for us as kids growing up. Let's go back to the uh Beginning of Con and stuff like that. Moon landing. I remember this from episode one. Moon landing was such a big deal when Con was coming around in the infancy of it and stuff like that. Such a pivotal event in history. Do you think there are uh, anything that can come close to something like that in modern day? Like when it comes to a Con, like let's say we're gonna we're gonna come around and build the Heroes Home Base Comic Convention. That would, that would, would there be anything more modern that would shape something as big as the moon landing?
0: Probably PlayStation 9. (laughs) Things have changed a lot, you know. In my generation, kids wanted to be astronauts, yeah. I hope that comes back around, but for the last 40 years, kids say, Oh man, I love seeing that space stuff, I want to be a special effects artist,
1: yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean that really scratches that itch and you don't have to be in shape or brave or get blown up or anything.
2: Um I just thought like that that's a good point cuz I remember growing up and wanted to be a pilot. Our dad was in the Air Force and it was it was a cool uh it was always it was always cool to point at him in his military outfit like, "Yeah, he's in the Air Force." Yeah, I'm going to be a
0: pilot yeah, well, someday. My dad was a Pearl Harbor survivor, so I was always proud of him for a whole different reason, but still. Wow. I- yeah. And, right. and the nice thing was my dad wasn't a hard ass. He was a very good guy and not a right wing nut or anything. And he, he had plenty of friends who were Asian, even though.
2: Yeah.
0: His friends got killed. I mean, he he had his head on the street.
3: Yeah. That's actually a really good point, Scott. Something that we didn't unfortunately have time uh, to, to really delve into deeply as we did in some of the interviews was the, uh, those early years of San Diego. And one of the things we're really proud of about. Uh, our series is not only do we talk a great deal obviously about comic con and fandom and innovations to the science fiction community for movies and things like that over the years in the 80s and 90s but we were able to really sort of track a little bit of how san diego itself was evolving over this 50 year period and scott you just said it about your your dad having been involved in pearl harbor but a, a lot of a lot of you guys growing up there your your parents your fathers very were involved
0: military in one way or another, Greg's dad was, was in, um, you know, Roger's dad worked with the uh, people, you know, building and designing planes and stuff. I mean, you know, and, and, and that, but that was also a good thing about San Diego, I think. I think towns with a heavy military presence tend to breed a opposite strong counterculture. Mm-hmm. I I've been at shows in Pensacola, Florida, which reminded me very much of San Diego, and it's and the fan base and the alternate lifestyle people are absolutely just wearing it on their sleeve, which made me feel really good. And no. uh, you know, I I I don't know really know what San Diego like anymore. I do know that. Uh, from what I've heard, that Comic-Con is only, fi- is only finally getting some sort of appreciation by the city. Mm-hmm. But when we were, I don't think we talked about this much either in the show, but they, they kind of ignored us all the way up until the 1990s, probably.
3: We had a little bit in, in the show, and we definitely talked with you guys about it a lot more, but we definitely wanted to have that clear. I think throughout the whole series, every now and then, there's a someone says something about how the city wasn't very supportive. And someone says, I forget whom, but someone says outright that, you know, a couple of times even try to sort of stop you guys from doing it because they didn't want a bunch of weirdos running around downtown uh, and and so forth until they started doing the numbers and realizing, Hey, this is really good for the community. Um, But you're right, Scott, it's funny. I, you know, everyone made it very clear. It wasn't until the last few years after a fifty-year run, that San Diego really started to kind of work with you guys to, uh, to you know, when they realized how much money it brings to the community here, and I'm sure they're they're going through the numbers right now and seeing what it was like to not have Comic Con because I know so many of the the hotels and the restaurants and the infrastructure of San Diego in that area, you know, is dependent is- upon this every year. Yeah, it brings in so many people.
0: Well, and 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 quite honestly, the original Comic Con, you know, went uh, from three hundred kids. You know, within a few years to about 3,000 kids. And uh, I, I've always attributed that to the fact that we were in San Diego.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: never understood this until I was a professional. But most guys working in comics sit over a board 10 hours a day, try to make time for their family when they can. But back then, most of the business was in New York too. Only the undergrounds were on the West Coast and in Texas. And suddenly... Once Jack Kirby started talking about it and Neil Adams went back and talked about it to people, suddenly it was like, not only, hey, there's a convention out there so we can get out of town, it's I could take the whole family, look like a hero, and tax deduct the entire thing. <laughs> for and I think that in itself was a major draw from people from back east. Because even if their publishers didn't pay for it, or the con didn't pay for it, we got a lot of influx very quickly from people that just wanted to be in San Diego and see what we were doing and write it off on their taxes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Wouldn't want that opportunity. Right. And look like a hero, you know. Your kids suddenly go, "Hey, Dad's
2: vacation." Cool.
0: Yeah, and go to the go, go see your dad get an up get a, an award or something. I mean, you know. There's no, no down side of that.
2: So was there ever a moment, I love that you said it started with 300 kids and then it got to 3,000, and now I don't even know what the attendance is nowadays, but was there ever a moment that you were like, holy shit, I was totally involved with this, and it's now at this level?
0: Well, I think when it got difficult to reach the bathroom, <laughs> right. because there were so many crowds, <laughs> and it was like, oh, geez, I've done this to myself. Now, you know, it's like... <laughs> This is horrible. Uh, You know, it it crept up on us, you know, because we were too busy enjoying it. And by the way, I have to say something. A lot of people have said, because we've talked a bit, well, more than a bit about living it up, having parties, uh, buying pot at the convention, doing LSD, all these different things. It was most of us that worked on the show before it happened. We did the publicity. We did the stuff for the program book. We and we were the artists so obviously we were probably more into that stuff than some people but we had by the time the convention opened we weren't doing volunteer work there we were sitting at our table maybe trying to sell something yeah but we actually could live it up so that was that was probably why we got away with so much of that stuff was because we weren't putting in hard time We'd already done our time, but as for, as for the change in, in, in convention, I mean, I think, I think when they started getting Hollywood in Hollywood decided to get into it, not with with our idea, but that, and then that led to the video game business and the toy business. And, uh, and I think that's when the big jump came because suddenly the public wanted to come because they might meet a star Mm -hmm. and I'm not talking about Sergio. (laughs) right he is our star but to the public you know people always crack me up because they you know they say i just love comics they're just great i said oh who's your favorite cartoonist they just freeze uh walt disney (laughs) (laughs) walt could barely draw you know uh matt Groening, same thing (laughs) I mean, Matt's much more involved than than Walt was, but you get my point. Most Americans do not have a favorite cartoonist. They know the characters, but, you know, so there wasn't that draw. But if it's a a movie star, somebody they can see on television or even, I mean, there was one point, not a Comic-Con, but there were lots of uh, porn stars going to conventions. Mm -hmm. And and there still are a lot of them. There are a lot of, have a lot of wrestlers and Power Rangers. Yep, yep. So it's like, you know, people complain about Comic-Con not being enough about comics. Well, there's a ton of stuff about comics at Comic-Con, but you just have to kind of know what to find. There's also a lot of celebrity stuff and Hollywood crap. I mean, I work in Hollywood, so I go down there to get away from Hollywood and then it shows up. It's like, <laughs> hey, don't me me. stay away. But but you know, I mean, anything you're interested in there, if you just want to go see interesting looking people, I mean, it it is a bit of an ordeal if you're not young and limber and able to (laughs) see where you're going and still be looking up at everything as most people are, but it's worth it if you can get in.
2: Right. So I have a question for you, Scott. So if let's say, uh, seven to twelve year old comes up to you and says I'm about to go to my first comic-con of my life what what would you what would you want to tell them so that they could get the most out of that experience
0: well it would depend on what they like what they're interested in and I'd say for example if they wanted to be a cartoonist I'd say uh, come 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 hang out with the cartoonist come talk to me come talk to Sergio come talk to Steve Leoloa. take you know take the guys that are Maybe popular longtime cartoonists, but we're the nice guys that want to talk to kids about if they'd like to do that. Right. If they're more interested in Hollywood, go get line up for Hall, Hall G or Hall H, whichever I think it's Hall H, where they have all the celebrity stuff and get there like at five in the morning or something with dad. You know, dad's going to have to take him to stand in that line. Um, or just say, look, go sit. if you like cartoons, there's voiceover stuff. Um, I mean, I tell everybody, come see Oddball Comics and uh, Quick Draw because of those the two uh, shows I'm involved in. And by the way, they're probably the only two shows, other than Mark Evanier's uh, voice ar- artist panel, that we're not trying to sell you anything. It's just okay. about, here's how cartoonists think. And mine's about, here's, how, here's comic books that you can't even believe ever got published right because they're so ridiculous so i mean those are just pure entertainment shows rather than shows about entertainment Mm -hmm. yeah i think that i'm kind of proud that at least that sets us apart but you know what that's fine if you like entertainment i'm just a little allergic to hollywood because i've dealt with it so many years
2: i uh i have to admit i think this was episode one where they're talking about was it the three rings the logo the poster getting made and stuff like that and the three things that it was and i just remember we admittedly never been to san diego but we've been to new york quite a few times and we always get a survey after and i was the guy i will admit this i'm the guy that like there's not enough comics in comic con it's in the it's in the f- f- name why, why can i get more comic booths and i love the answer that it was it was sci-fi was involved in it comics were involved in it what was the? what am i missing here this is movies movies Movies. so animation yeah and you're like it was always involved like it was never just comic con and i'm like damn it i was wrong but like i would always be the guy like i just want more comic vendors like i don't need to trip over a giant chevy display over here and who's coming to comic con to buy a car (laughs) like you know what i mean like so it is to your point where you said there is there's going to be something there for you whether you know you're gonna be brave enough to go find it. But obviously for me and the rest of the guys here, it's comics for us. But uh it is it is nice that you can have a banner with so many things listed under it and so many geeks and nerds and can find family with everything that's there. And I just think that we have very so few of these things that bring a lot of people together nowadays. And uh it's just a breath of fresh air to have a nerd a nerd culture, a nerd event, nerd mecca. Nerd sure, And I'll tell
0: you one thing that really has improved conventions in general and Comic Con in particular are the cosplayers.
2: Yes. Because yeah, it's mm-hmm.
0: a whole area that most of us guys that never even think to use deodorant. It's a whole different <laughs> group of people. Hey, we're we want to look nice, we want to smell nice. We you know, I mean it's like a whole different presentation. And and also the other thing I like in terms of, of vendors there we're now getting a lot of people who not, not draw, but like make their own stuff, not t-shirts necessarily, but knitted hats that they've made of some character that they've created. And I really love that. I mean, the thing about comic con and and Mark and I talk about it a lot is the fact that when you're at comic con, you are breathing creativity. Yes. And even if you don't write, you don't draw, you don't do anything creative in your life. You're there because you appreciate creativity, which makes you part of the process.
1: Yep. The yep. I like that. Yeah, you're a part of it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because what's the point of creating stuff if if it doesn't reach its its, its intended uh, person to enjoy it? Well, there not only do they get to show off that they met people they like, but we get to get feedback. For example, when you when you mentioned Muppet Babies early yeah. on in the show, yeah. we always wondered are We're trying to put something extra. We don't just want this to be another shitty Pink Panther and Sons show. We (laughs) want this to be kind of about something. And there's no mean kids. There were all the other Saturday morning cliches. Yes. You know, at the worst, the characters might work at cross purposes like they always did as adult characters. Yeah. But we got to be educational in the sneakiest way possible.
2: Mm hmm.
0: And I we had so much fun on that thing. And the reason that show was good, and I'm so glad to hear that it made its mark because the new one doesn't have any of that. I don't know. If I was just about
2: to say that one. the new one's shit. But It's
0: just fluff. It's just fluff. There's no content at all other than maybe some real limp meth- obvious message at the end. And I realize it's probably for kids a few years younger, but still I'm much prouder of ours because we really stuck our neck out. And the fact that Jim Henson approved the stuff CBS stayed away. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean,
0: I've produced shows where the network just drove me practically to, you know, have a breakdown. But there, because Jim Henson said, Yeah, this is great, they're not going to stand up to Jim Henson. Right. So we got to play around with it all the time. I mean, often the script didn't, the script on the board we turned in had nothing to do with the script other than the basic theme. Because We had a producer who was open to innovation and even the production assistants, some of them became writers because he gave people a chance. I mean, it was a very unusual, wonderful situation. So I'm glad that came through to you guys. Yeah,
1: love Mm -hmm. that show. Yeah, And the message was always weaved, very evenly weaved throughout the show. It wasn't so blatantly, bam, at the end. It was always very evenly weaved throughout the show. Thank you.
0: And I'll tell you, I the thing I enjoyed the most and did a lot of, I did some of the more important episodes, like the first Star Wars one, and the one where they're having the pie fight with the Three Stooges. That was a thrill. <laughs> but uh, I did a lot of the song sequences. And not just the ones that I did, but when I look at some of those, I get big tears in my eyes because we didn't have anything like that on Saturday Morning I mean, We got to be really abstract. I did one with Gonzo singing about being a semi weirdo and I did all these gags of Matisse paintings. How many times, and we never even mentioned Matisse. We just thought, let's throw that in. And, and, and I mean, I, I, even with shows that I was the producer of, I didn't have that kind of freedom.
3: Yeah. We really appreciate that kind of stuff, Scott. And I definitely am part of the chorus here about Muppet babies. I mean, it still comes up every now and then i was at a a pub trivia thing uh last week uh with my wife at a at a local bar it's, believe it or not it's actually an 80s bar it's all like Alf and Teenage Mutant Turtles and Simpsons yeah. and Muppets and such yeah so it's yeah they we're we're at that we're at that point now yeah we're at the 80s 80s bar time but um You know, we were talking about Muppets and things and uh, Muppet Babies definitely came up. And I tell you, some of the people there, it surprised me because they were a lot older. And so it was clear. I think that's one of those shows. I talked about this a lot in the Nickelodeon book and some of my work on that, too. It's called Transgenerational. It -hmm. is that idea of, Scott, I think you guys with Muppet Babies and some of the other shows you worked on, you created something like when Pixar does it so well, which it's for kids, but the parents can enjoy it. Stoner college kids can watch it for, you know, for their own reasons. The babysitters can enjoy well, that's
0: it because of my involvement. Yeah,
3: right. But I'm just saying it's nice when there's stuff where it's like the older brothers and sisters can enjoy it. The parents can enjoy it. And it's not just total dreck. And unfortunately, you know, I've, I've said this a lot over the years, but, you know, I just I don't think there's that same kind of quality as far as really reaching out to everybody the way that you guys did in a lot of those shows in the 80s and 90s. Um, I mean, Scott, you, you sent me to the other guys uh, on the podcast here. I don't know if you're aware of it, but Scott also was involved in those, uh, uh, uh Fruity and Cocoa Pebbles commercials that we, oh, well. all really? and again, it's like, they're, they're like little short films. I mean, they're not just like blatant commercials. I like talk about like working in the message organically, like, yeah, it's selling us sugary cereal, but they're like little short films. And,
0: you well, know, it so it turns s- out that I'm the father of rap music because I am <laughs> the one that has Barney singing, I love my fruity pebbles in a major way.
3: <laughs> Put your hands in the air. Right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I've actually been on some hip hop Zoom meetings with, with, with kids that like my stuff, and they're all like,
1: Yeah, you did that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's a different. It's a different mentality of even in the commercials that you're working on, Scott, is what I'm saying. And I, I've had the fortunate ability to, over the years, write about interview people that are coming from similar kinds of places, Simpsons, obviously, and others. But uh, it's something very special. And I think to connect it back to Comic-Con, it makes sense. And we talk about this a lot throughout the series as well, is how much you guys were all you know, bouncing off of each other's creativity and how passionate you all were. And there's some irreverence and there's some, you know, hippie or punk rock or whatever you want to call it mentality. And you're all kind of building off each other. So it makes sense that when you would create even a, an innocuous children's show like Muppet Babies, you're going to bring some of that in. And that's something that we, the 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 30 and 40 year old guys that are talking to you right now, Scott, or that are listening to this uh, can say, you know, we we, we caught that. It, it, it affected us. Well, that's why we can that's still talk right. about it you know 20 30 years later and not just some silly chintzy little children's show that we sure. watched when we were kids yeah
0: i i get the same reaction to my captain carrot comics because now that the kids are now 45 years old they they have said in multiple cases it was like reading an underground comic for kids And i said yeah that's because i did underground comics <laughs> i said why should i change my style or approach i just you know my my, even my underground comics were never that dirty i mean even the turd was you know not i mean that was perfect for four-year-olds yes (laughs) and adults and adults it's like oh this was my first gag and i'm reading all about it It
2: scott i i have to say i want to go back i really appreciate you kind of saying it's like we're living and breathing creativity when you're at con because i've been thinking a lot you know listen to the podcast, but also, you know, with Rich and Mark, we're talking about kind of comics and the community and kind of what it's like to be a part of something so, so big. I I think that's, that articulates it really well that, you know, you are, creativity is this living, breathing, constantly changing, organic thing, and you get to immerse yourself in it and be a part of it actively as well as passively too. So I just think that that's really cool that you said it that
0: way the 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 saddest part, I suppose, is it's there's so much product out there that how if you really want to be on top of everything like we used to be, I mean, like like most of me and my buddies, we love monster movies. We loved horror movies. We loved anything sci-fi. We liked reading science fiction books. We liked the comic strips. We like you know, we got influence from all that. now you couldn't you could be a full time 10 hour a day marvel entertainment viewer and still not run out of material to see their so it's like you know there's got to be an awful lot of good stuff being lost in the chaos due to the fact that marketing now everything is so shrill that you don't even know what to do i wound mm-hmm. up working with me TV on with, you know, black and white movies so I don't look up. If I had something on that was actually, you know, really new and interesting, I wouldn't get my work done. And that's how <laughs> a lot of cartoonists work. We, we we make sure that there's nothing too fascinating on if we have the TV on. Besides that way, we can steal old stuff.
3: <laughs> I was just thinking about that, actually. Before, Right before this, Scott, I was actually watching my complete Munsters box set with dinner and my wife. And I was thinking... I, I was the, you know, what's nice about this is not only do I actually enjoy the monsters and it's fun, and I even like the campy, horrible canned laughter. It sort of adds something to it, I have to say. But yeah, I was thinking, like, you know, what's nice too is if they do say something that's like truly, like universally, like you know, funny. Even now, I could take that. No one would know. I mean because not too many people are gonna watch the monsters but uh yeah it's it's fun to to, to pay a, a a reverent homage to an old TV show by uh by reworking an idea from 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 it you know i guess would be the euphemistic hollywood way of saying that you stole something blatantly from an old TV show <laughs>
0: well well there's an awful lot of good stuff in old TV
3: there is there is now, yeah. i grew
0: up in the era of the schemer it was uh the honeymooners bilko and amos and andy and those were the three shows that were my favorites because it was always about guys trying to trying to come up with the big schemes so they could finally you know not be lower class citizens anymore
3: or eddie haskell and, uh, eddie, eddie haskell
0: <laughs> i mean that's easy to re- relate to and they were all funny and uh all very different i mean people slander amos and andy now but they haven't watched any they're they're, they're for one thing, they hired more black actors than just about any TV show until the 70s. So that alone made it, you know, if those people were willing to do the, the lines, then it must have been okay as far as I'm concerned.
2: Right. Well, let's go, let's go back to your underground comics and underground uh, film society. And uh, <laughs> let's touch a little bit about that before we do our uh, rapid fire questions.
0: Okay. So- well, there wasn't anything underground about us. It was about two years before we ever actually did anything underground. We just didn't want to get beaten up for calling it the, the funny book and sci-fi club. You know, it was, we, 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 we were in a huge high school, the biggest high school in San Diego. I had 1,200 people in my graduating class. Mm. And uh, when they split the, the, the uh, school up into two high schools, then they were the two biggest high schools in San
2: Diego. Right.
0: But but as you heard in the, uh, Roger Friedman and Greg Bear and Dave Clark and John Pound and we had we had some other kids Jan Morris who was uh, the only girl in our group, but uh, we kind of had enough of us that we might get beaten up in gym class, because we're talking about Star Trek out in right field and the ball rolls right between us. Gonna <laughs> get that? And, no. I know and then not. I go, it's only a game, and then. And then the fists start flying, you know. But I never did learn. I, I I've never had the slightest interest in sports because I just I just never cared who won. I'm not. I, I'm more competitive with myself, I guess. But um, we didn't have to deal with that because when we were all together, and it was like a mutual support group. And you know, I John made me kind of want to draw better in terms of not just in a Mort Walker kind of style, but actually maybe a little more physics applied to the drawings. And yet, he always wanted me to help write gags for him because I was, you know, easier with the gags. And, uh, you know, Greg, I remember Greg walked in one day and he had this little flimsy, it looked like a fanzine, but it was a very cheap little digest science fiction magazine that was on the newsstands and it had his first story in it and we were in we were seniors so i mean that's how certain he got he got into the business long before any of us but it was a great situation because yeah we tried to make a make a movie and we talked about everything all the stuff we liked it was and and and, you know we were essentially half of the people that started the convention i mean the the initial group i should say Oh yeah. All right. You said you had some rapid fire things I do not
2: I d I don't I don't have the email that Rob was supposed to send. I, I I'm not seeing it. Can
0: you
1: tell us at least when did you first fall in love with comics? Uh
0: about when I was about three. Oh wow. Yeah, it was weird. I asked my mom once, I said why did you buy me so many comic books in a period where they were burning comic books cuz they thought that turned kids into juvenile delinquents? Oh wow. And she just rolled her eyes and she said all I know is you really seemed to need them. And <laughs> I taught myself how to read with comics. Yeah. And I taught myself how to draw with comics. Oh. I remember looking at a witty woodpecker comic when I was about 4 and he's got a piece of pie. He's like in a restaurant or something. And I realized that's just two triangles above each other. And I mean, it's a very you know obscure and not necessarily useful uh, thing, but it was the first thing that really occurred to me. And I started analyzing all the drawings for myself and trying to copy characters, not out of the comics, but on TV. And then a little later I'd be selling drawings to my friends for two cents or three cents a piece. And that's how I made the money to buy more comic books to learn how to draw. And- uh, you know, I mean, I think a lot of cartoonists work that way because cause even in college, nobody wanted to give me cartooning classes. Right. That's right. why I dropped out of college.
2: Um, now, do you nowadays have.
0: You go to cartooning college, but everybody comes out, everybody draws the same. So yeah. I don't know if that's what I'd want to do either.
2: Do you have a holy grail still in your possession that from as a kid or something that you still wish to get to this day?
0: I've got so much stuff. I don't know if there's. <laughs> <laughs> anything i really dying i'll tell you there's one thing i'd like to get is this little figure from japan of a monster from the old outer Limits show from 1963 so none of your none of your people listening to this will know what i'm talking about So will <laughs> move on probably the i've got a lot of really cool things because i'm very lucky to have been picking up the stuff i liked back when nobody cared about it. yeah right yeah I mean, I like the funny stuff and people were, ah, you like, well, how about superheroes? I like superheroes too, but I also like this stuff. I've got, I've got a couple of pieces by Carl Barks, Mm. I've got, I've got in comic books, I've got both the East coast and the West coast editions of the big boy comic number Mm. one, the ones that they'd hand out in those restaurants. That's a good one. That's when nobody else probably cares about having, but me. I mean, you know, I've got all kinds of stuff, and I'm but after a while, it's going to all be my son's stuff and then it's his problem. Wait, wait, wait.
3: Hey, 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 Scott, tell them what your son's name is.
0: My son's name is Kirby.
3: How, and, and you told me there's a number of people who have sons named Kirby that you know.
0: Yeah, Rick Veach really? has his name Kirby, too, and I think there's a few more. And uh Jack knew about it, and uh, we brought, well, Kirby was with us at, at the Comic Con when he was about ten months old, and my wife is holding him, and Jack comes up and he kind of does those Jack Kirby hands, and my son just starts screaming. <laughs> it was great, pretty- <laughs> but but uh, yeah, Jack was a huge influence on me. Probably you know just only second to my father. Wow, and uh, he gave me lots of advice, and had a great sense of humor, and I think the fact. That I found out that he could draw funny stuff just as well as he could draw adventure stuff uh, made a big difference to me, and I remember the first time I met him was at his home, and I said, "You're my favorite cartoonist." And when he and his eyes kind of got like this when I said cartoonist, because he called himself a cartoonist, even though a lot of guys that draw the superhero stuff, oh, I'm an artist. I draw, you know, it's like no, I'm I, he writes and draws. He's a cartoonist. Right. But uh, yeah, he sent me a drawing right after that awesome yeah of king kong strangling me
1: (laughs) (laughs) to hear you speak of him, it's almost like you knew prince or michael jackson you know what i'm saying that's i mean that's how he is in the comic world you know what i'm saying so it's like you knew like the michael jackson of you know all right that's so cool well you know
0: i'm not bragging here but i've been lucky enough or unfortunate enough to work with a lot of celebrities and i produced john candy's show cartoon show and john and I knew each other quite well and Martin Short show Ed Grimley had almost the entire cast of SCTV including Jonathan Winters another uh comedian that you guys probably know from Mork and Mindy but at one time he was actually funny um <laughs> but but you know I, I've gotten and, and even the fact that I worked with Hannon Barbera or Tex Avery or Jim Henson I mean yeah. when we got our first Emmys Jim Henson threw a party for us and we got to meet him and uh Frank Oz, and most importantly, Barbara Billingsley, the lady that did Nanny's Voice, who was the mom on Leave it to Beaver. And to guys (laughs) my age, that show's obscure to you guys, but that was like... Oh, we know it. I I referenced Eddie Haskell earlier. I can see her name in the
1: credits at the end of the show. You are Eddie
0: Haskell. Yeah, you're
3: damn right. (laughs) I like to think of myself more as Dobie Gillis, really, is what I do.
2: (laughs) All right, so a couple of our uh I for some reason email isn't going through, so I'll take it from here a little bit. So some of our standard rapid fire so Matt, what are you you'll recognize some of these. Some of them. What are some of your favorite comic book movies?
0: Um American Splendor. Okay. Um nice. Uh let's see. I really like the first Captain America movie a lot. Um nice pick. And 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 you're gonna you're gonna all bust me. I like blank man. Blank man. <laughs> Nothing wrong with blank man.
1: Blank man was excellent. Blank
0: man is the only superhero that has a legitimate excuse for wanting to be a superhero. I, I like superheroes. I, I like that movie a lot and people people shit on it, but it's like no, you have to be able to look at the idiocy of a guy dressed up in a superhero suit. I mean, yep. I mean, I love superheroes, but it's inherently ridiculous, and, and it's fun when people do it right to point that out.
3: You can actually say that movie's pioneering, in a way, in that genre, because you did have a lot of these other movies come out later, like that movie with... Um, uh, Rain Wilson, uh, I think it was called. Uh, oh, that one's disturbing. Yeah, that one. Or um, James Gunn even did, uh, uh, before he got really big, he did that one of a bunch of kind of losery comic book characters, the specials, I think it was called. Species. or Kick. Yeah, or oh, Kick-Ass, kick ass, ass. obviously. Really Kick-Ass is a really budget, good
0: thing. But it's really good because they're all complaining about their licensing deals and stuff.
3: Yeah, no, I, I liked I, yeah. I liked that movie a lot. I, I was definitely, well, I'm a, I'm a trauma guy too. And a lot of the people I knew, I'm still friends with Lloyd. And by the way, for anyone still listening, Lloyd Kaufman's in our Comic-Con Begins thing as well. But, um, you know, Lloyd and everyone had always talked a lot about James even before he became... Who he was i mean we were into him when he was still doing troma movies like tromeo and juliet and whatnot so i i saw the specials pretty early and was really taken aback by it because i I agree i thought i'm normal as the guys here know i normally don't really watch comic book movies but I like the movies that kind of play with it and deconstruct it. So I saw yes. a bunch of them, including the specials, which I really enjoyed. And I agree; I think it's very good. It's a very smart. Well, the, cert- the
0: thing about that movie, and I've got a tr- treatment that I've got going around that is kind of the same: is you write about the stuff that doesn't involve special effects.
2: Right.
0: And you, know, it's, this is what they're doing when they're not off heroing, and that makes that works great. Mm-hmm. You know?
3: It even, I, I you know, spoiler alert, sort of, but I think it's important. I mean, I love that it's like that is the last moment of the movie is like suddenly they all go off to go do something. And I he was smart enough to even make it like this explosive, like the world is gonna be destroyed, and like all of a sudden they actually turn into the superhero types yeah. and go do something. And then the movie ends. You know, it's like <laughs> now that they actually go off to go be superheroes, like the movie has is over You've seen that. Which I really yeah, which I really love. It's it's very similar. A lot of people didn't like this movie, but I love Jim Jarmusch's uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, his vampire movie that he made a few years ago. And it was a similar kind of thing where it's like you never really see them be kind of the vampire characters that you're used to. It's almost a lot of people were bored by it. Uh, And, you know, the very last scene of the movie is suddenly they become vampires for, you know, like the monster vampires you're used to. And, you know, credits. So I, I love when filmmakers can kind of really be deconstructionist in that way. And I think that's a lot of fun.
0: By the so way, Blank I, Man, yes. <laughs> I forgot to make, mention actually my three favorite superhero movies because they're not live action superhero movies. Both Incredibles movies yes. and, in, and Into the Spider-Verse. Yes. Man, I can't wait to see what they're going to do. I just kind of wish that the live action movies would take some cues mm-hmm. from the Spider-Verse and drop frames out, or pop backgrounds, or exaggerate things, or use the comic book uh, captions, or the, I mean, it was so damn good in so many ways. Yes. Mm -hmm. When they Mm -hmm. had, when I had my foot amputated, I made sure that I could see it twice before that, both in, in, in regular and 3D, because I didn't want to miss it on the big screen, and I'm so glad I got to see it that way, because God, it wouldn't, the whole, you know, I oftentimes, if I see, especially a movie where you're kind of isolated, even if you're with your family or friends, I cry like a baby when I yes. see a movie that actually was done right. Mm-hmm. Because I've experienced how hard it is to do anything well in entertainment. You've got mm-hmm. so many people blocking you or working against you or whatever. When it comes out right, it's a f-ing miracle. Yeah. You know? it really is.
2: So, when you said it's all kind of ridiculous in the in the superheroes, you are reminded me of I think it was um it's one of those interviews that Michael Keaton was doing after doing Batman Returns when Tim Burton was obviously going to war with the studio after that movie and he was like I was on the set and we're all wearing costumes and he's like he just looked around like this is really ridiculous. Like this is so <laughs> ridiculous. Uh I just that just reminded me of that. All right, so what are Let's do two. What are a couple of your least favorite comic book movies and why?
0: Um Captain Marvel. Okay. I felt, I felt that Captain Marvel, very much like Superman or Batman versus Superman, has no contrast whatsoever. Hmm. Oh, here's 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 Dark Superman and Darker Batman. Well that's quite a contrast to be against each other. Or in a different way, in Captain Marvel, she's an incredibly powerful woman who's being abused by an asshole, and then she gets bigger superpowers so she can appear in Endgame. Right. Mm. I mean, it was like a placeholder, and 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 I I feel bad because so many women really thought it was a wonderful mm. movie, and I'm certainly not going to argue with them if they thought so. But my son and I have each watched it twice together, and we are very open to stuff and both times we said you know that was some bad plotting Mm -hmm. it didn't really accomplish anything Mm. Um, i never
2: even finished it
0: (laughs) and and i've been told not to even try to watch the wonder woman don't don't (laughs) yeah and i loved the first one it was great um other another superhero movie i really hate uh i don't want to use all the ones everybody hates Um, I, I really don't I, I mean i i could say this about all of them the dc movies in general they just really frustrate me
2: scott you, you you're part of the family now man
0: yeah, not unique at all but i i don't want to be slowing down your process here but I mean, no thing. i think wonder woman is probably the best thing they've done and i think that shazam although not a great movie certainly shows that if they knock off all those horrible Swamp Thing-looking monsters and actually address what's, what's typical of Captain Marvel and make it even a more family-type thing, I think mm-hmm. it would be good. Although that whole thing of the ending with all the Power Rangers Captain Marvel showing up, hi, I'm fat, hi, I'm skinny, hi, I'm in a wheelchair. It's like, come on, quit trying to... It was as bad as the end of Green Lantern. Oh, there's a bad one. <laughs> I about that. You know, one DC book that I really love was Green Lantern because not only was it Gil Kane, but because it was a very visual superpower. Yeah. He was constantly creating, oh, here's a giant yo-yo, you know, or whatever. And they didn't use that at all. There was all, there was so no visual clarity in that movie. You got Ryan, Ryan Reynolds. There's no story arc in him. He starts at an asshole. He ends as an asshole. You have the, 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 the rest of the Green Lantern show up at the end Shouldn't that be like the beginning of the next movie, especially if you don't have a next movie? I mean, it just, it just, it just never, it was just a horrible. Oh, and by the way, that Tomar Ray is now a fish instead of a bird. That was a shocker, too. Right. Because I always thought he was the coolest design of the alien Green Lanterns. Mm-hmm. See, I'm really really goofy in more ways than (laughs) one all good
2: um what's the last tv show that you binged
0: i really like uh in the heat of the night okay Okay. i'd never seen it you know with all these old channels showing shows that i never saw before it's 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 really rare in that first of all it's shot in a little town someplace down in the south and they it's kind of like Hawaii 5 a lot of the players are local. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the whole theme of the series is essentially the blues. So they don't have a whole lot of endings where everybody's laughing at the end. It's a lot, I mean, for a show in the 90s, this feels a lot more contemporary than a lot of shows from that period. I mean, it's not perfect, but it certainly, it got me interested in what and see all of them.
2: Nice. Cool. um what are some of your favorite music artists
0: todd Rundgren, um todd Rundgren in, with the utopia <laughs> all phases of todd Rundgren's career um i like the tubes um i like i like the who i like uh, cheap trick i like bands with a sense of humor yeah i love paul revere and the raiders when i was a kid i loved jan and dean i like you know guys that were on the verge i mean Cheap Trick's a good example. They're like a novelty band and a really good rock band and a hair band all at once.
2: Yeah, really there's that it. wacky
0: side to them. And uh, uh, you know, they're, they're I like stuff like that. But Todd Todd kind of owed more than anybody because he's uh, he does a little bit of everything. He keeps re- rebuilding his his style in different ways. And uh, he's my favorite. He, if I was a musician, I'd want to be Todd Rundgren. Nice. Nice. Fair enough. Um, What's your favorite takeout? Takeout food? Yep. Uh, Giant Italian subs. Nice. Mm, I can have one a month. (laughs) (laughs) I I have all these things now. I allow myself to have one a month, and I'm hoping to come up with 30 different things. (laughs) But (laughs) I I, I actually gained a little weight, but I'm trying to get back down. But uh, I, I like subs. And I get I get hot dogs. I get all the things that are going to give me anal cancer. That's (laughs) pretty much everything in the American grocery store. (laughs) And I can really be the turd. (laughs) I was just going to say, peanut butter, right there. And then next week, Scott gets a bad, bad call.
2: bad colonoscopy results oh,
0: I um, actually had one not too long ago <laughs> oh, Jesus
2: you're all, you're all cleared out there Scott That's, I'm
0: right here be good.
2: <laughs> Um, this is kind of a different one uh, what is maybe kind of a, a country or a location where you haven't been that you've heard from some fans that would really appreciate you showing up and going to
0: that really has never been the case <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's Aww. the best answer <laughs>
0: i'll tell you where i'd like to go back okay it's canada i was a special guest at a at a thing in uh alberta mm-hmm. and uh it was a it was a memorable trip because when i left i fell down backwards down the them the mm-hmm. big escalator at lax and just oh, shit body and barely hurt myself but um, once I was there, I had planned to go to this museum in the near there, that is uh, got the biggest collection of fossil dinosaurs in in uh, North America, and it was closed that day. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> I want to go back. I want to go back there and
2: see. You straight it. up had a family vacation moment.
0: <laughs> well, I was there by myself. Okay. And I made friends with some kids, so they said. Uh, we started talking. We went to dinner, and they, they they looked it up and said, "Well, it's not. It's closed." And I said, "Oh shit!" And they said, this is "A better idea. We got something we think you'll like." Okay. So I get in this car with these strangers, and we're smoking weed like there's no tomorrow, and we're heading out into the tundra. And up there, this was like in 2014, I think. I mean, I don't know what the situation is there now, but it was like everybody's like, really keep it low, don't let the police see. It was like, oh great, <laughs> that could be paranoia always influences the high. That's good. <laughs> but um we go out in the middle of nowhere, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, they're gonna cut me up in pieces and and and, and you know, hang me for whatever birds can still fly around up here. And it turned out they took me. To a town. Well, I'll tell you what I saw before I saw the town. I saw a big fiberglass replica of the Enterprise.
2: Oh wow! Oh wow! I mean, it's
0: probably thirty feet long. Wow! And that's on the edge, and then the sign: "Welcome to Vulcan." Wow! The whole town was based on Star Trek stuff. Wow! Nice. And it was just a little town in the middle of nowhere. And these kids really did get me because I I, I love Star Trek when it was new, but I never was like heavy into it like a lot of people have become. But I always loved the fact it was very progressive and put was a mm-hmm. thinking show rather than just a goofy show. And but that fandom could spring up in the middle of nowhere. it's awesome. It was like finding a rose in the middle of a parking lot growing up through the asphalt. It really <laughs> was just charmed the hell out of me and they had this thing that was half half museum and half gift shop like they were selling off some of the things (laughs) and i walked in one and there was a whole room much bigger than this that the walls were covered still in the bubble pack of all those star trek action figures from the 1990s nice and i said wow and she goes And the lady, who was the docent and the cashier, (laughs) uh, she said, "Well, those are all given to us because uh, by a lady whose husband was a big Star Trek collector, and he and he got sick and died." And I look at her, I said, "Are you sure he wasn't killed?" because, oh, that's right, I forgot to say, and he's got, and we've got about this many more, we've got as many more of this in storage that he had, too, and that's when I said, oh, I think his wife killed him, you know? It's like...
2: <laughs> that's awesome. I actually had one of my my work partner just recently moved to Alberta, so I'll have to ask her to start searching around for Vulcan.
0: Well, I'll tell you, search north a long way. <laughs> and take a sandwich. <laughs>
2: A sub an Italian sub. Eh. Um. So two more here. So, All right. if you were not, if you didn't have the career that you have,
0: what else would you be? I'd be a horror host.
2: <laughs> Say more,
0: please. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I absolutely well, I still love monster movies, and they had somebody on San Diego named uh, Mona Lisa. In fact, I met her during the early days of Comic-Con. We went out to the station and she refused to admit she was Mona Lisa. But she was this beautiful brunette, wearing like this cat suit, laying around on a set with a bunch of dry ice. But she wrote her own material and she was cool and she was hip. So that kind of got me into it. But I always thought I'd like to be a paleontologist or a cartoonist. Well, paleontology fell off the list when I was told by a teacher if you study paleontology, it's pretty likely you won't be in a museum and you won't be out in the dirt. You will be working for a petroleum company. And I said, well, so much for that. <laughs> that. Now it's my hobby. Sure. And, and, and especially when the Flintstones came out that kind of sealed my doom anyway. But I think by the time I learned this I was in eighth grade or so. But I always, you know, there are always these horror hosts on TV showing old monster movies. There was a guy named Seymour. There's a whole bunch of them now online, but the only guy that's left that you can see on TV is a guy named Sven Gulli, a guy from Chicago named Rich Coes, and we have become pals. And he, I do drawings for him, he puts them on TV, he's going to do the introduction of my Oddball Comics book. But he's like all the great horror hosts rolled into one. And I always tease him because the horror host was always the guy that was like the gaffer or the weatherman, some guy that was like a minor thing, but he's a funny guy. Hey, you want to make an extra 50 bucks a week and put on a crazy suit and come in on Saturday and show this move? Sure, why not? So, so I'm always teasing Rich about, yes, the the lucrative industry of horror hosting, because nobody nice. makes any money doing that. But still, if I was doing at this, I'm not making much money now, I might as well be a horror host. You know?
2: All right, and if you could put 10 words on your tombstone, what would they be?
0: I won't count them, but it would do be your best.
2: I love this one. It would,
0: it would, it would be a, a quote from Hunter Thompson When the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Nice, that's kind you by of the turn. my credo. Nice, that's awesome. Well, he was awesome until he blew himself up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they sell them at conventions as little
2: pieces. Oh well, I think that about wraps rapid fire up, and I think uh, that's pretty much it. Unless Matt or Scott, unless you want to say anything else,
0: I think you've I think you've uh, <laughs> you've overdone it as it is.
2: So. <laughs> All right. I well, do. I actually have one question for for Matt. Oh, good. Uh, as I'm listening he to said, this, oh <laughs> good. Oh, <laughs> oh good. <thank> <laughs> <laughs> let's, see, let's see Matt
0: reveal his guts now. <laughs>
2: Um, what did because I, I remember when we were um interviewing you for You Are Obsolete, and that was kind of your first dab into the comic book realm. Has this project inspired you to? Yes, good question. I know. More <laughs> stuff, yeah. I mean, um. Scott,
3: I, I don't know if I've ever told you the name of it, but, or maybe I did, but uh, yeah, so they're talking about my comic book series that came out last year through Aftershock, you are obsolete, oh, yeah. and um, yeah, again, it's, you know, I, I've always been very clear about this, I never really was into comic books as a kid, I'm still not, I don't watch comic book movies, i am um, always been very interested in the comic book scene as a community, as a culture, I knew who Scott was before we 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 talked you know some of it was from the the cartoons and animation but also some of the underground stuff and whatnot um and it actually read about him in the fantastic fanographics oral history we told you so which I recommend to everybody um really really good uh book but uh, Scott's one of the voices in the, you know oral history parts of that um but where um, <laughs> that? I think they pulled stuff from. All different guys they've been working on it for like 20 years or so so someone probably talked to you at some point scott and then put it into the book but the point is i never was really a big comic book person but i was very interested in the culture and the community in the scene i you know enjoyed watching documentaries and reading biographies and autobiographies of people just because i find it a fascinating scene if even if i'm not really that into the actual uh, content so to speak so when i did my my first comic book series it was originally going to be a film And then I had a number of friends in the comic book scene who said, you know, this would make a great comic book. And Aftershock took the idea right away and it was a fantastic experience. And I really learned a lot about, uh, about obviously the making of comic books and working with all the illustrators and editors and everything. And it was through that. I think I might've told you guys this last time, uh, but you know, I, I, realized, shoot, I'm actually in this industry now. I better, you know, start catching up. So that was when I really started reading things like dark Knight returns and Mm-hmm. Um, a few others. I'd already read like Watchmen and if, and certain ones that you know were really important just for pop culture in general. I thought yep, that was important, true. but I started really engaging more in the world. And um, you know, I'm friends with with people like Tim Seeley already, so I started kind of picking his brain about certain things. So I was already definitely. It's a good question because I was already starting to really. Kind of become more dedicated to teaching myself more about the comic scene and getting more into it. In fact, when when uh, Sirius said that we would be able to get the Russo brothers on our podcast, I actually I knew I knew the name, but I actually had to look them up to be like, oh, they're the guys who made the Captain America movies and the Avengers last few Avengers movies and whatnot, in addition to Community and some other stuff that they worked on. But um, so I, you know, I've been really educating myself and definitely, you know, having gone through a year of the Comic-Con begins. And I did all of the interviews. Um, I was doing a ton of research the entire time. People like Scott, and Mark Evanier, and others were sending me material. So it was absolutely like a lot of my projects like this. I mean, it was like a PhD in not just Comic-Con, but in comics fandom, fandom in general. Obviously, a lot of the stuff I already knew through some of the other books and projects I've worked on over the years. There were a lot of intersections there. But yeah, I this has made me much more interested in and passionate in the comic book scene, and certainly just even talking to you guys, uh, you know, your podcasts or going to different comic book stores and such with You Are Obsolete. Um, I've I, uh, I I'm I'm becoming a bit of a convert for sure, yeah. And um, you know, it's 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 been fun and it has made me want to do more in this field. I mean, I had a blast with You Are Obsolete, it was one of the best creative experiences I ever had. Um, and I would love to continue doing comics I would love to get more involved in underground comics in particular and so forth I have a number of other ideas I think that would make good comics so uh, hopefully we'll have some opportunities for that I've actually become friendly with Gary Groth over at Fanagraphics through this process uh, as well and just getting to talk to him was really cool or people like Stan Sakai Uh, I know he's a bit of a controversial figure but personally I had a really good time talking to Kevin Eastman and Mm -hmm. um, you know certain others who Uh, You know, I was very surprised at uh, the interview with Frank Miller, for example. I mean, he's obviously got this crazy reputation. I know some people who actually worked on the Sin City movie and had some interesting stories about him. Colorful guy, of course. I was a little nervous, but boy, he was really sweet and nice and a lot of fun um, during the interview. So that was great uh, to kind of see that side of him that you don't really hear about or see in all the press about him and everything. I mean, the one. Regret I have. And we we didn't even try because we knew it wouldn't be possible, but it would have been really cool to get to talk to Alan Moore for the same kind of reason, like sort of a darker controversial guy. Yeah, we were able to, to get in some, you know, some archival clips of him. And we had people talking about him. One of my favorite quotes in the whole thing is Trina Robbins talking about how she thought Watchmen would kill the superheroes comics industry <laughs> and unfortunately it kept going. Um, but yeah, so I've learned so much. I've expanded on a lot of things I already knew getting to actually talk to and now become friends with people like Scott and a couple of others have been a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I wasn't as familiar with Jim Valentino, but I knew what image comics was. There's a great documentary about it actually at Jim's into that I can recommend. I think it's just called the Image Comic Story or something. But, you know, I would be somewhere and just see something or someone would say something about Todd McFarlane and I would text Jim and he would text me right back. And you know, it was just fun to be like, these people, I'm becoming friends with them and we're sharing things and, oh, check out this movie or whatever. Um, You know, the last thing I'll say about it is one of the reasons I think that I was so immersed in the Comic-Con Begins project, aside from just, I try to do the best I can with every project I work on, despite any challenges or whatnot, something similar kind of happened with the Nickelodeon book. You know, whenever I was going up to people in person with the Nickelodeon book, I actually went out to New York to finish it and met up with a lot of the people in person, multiple times. They were like, you look like you would have been at Nickelodeon in the eighties, you know? And I feel like that happened a few times with the Comic-Con begins project. Like, I just feel like there's no doubt that had I gotten to Crawford high in you know the sixties, I would have been hanging out with and been friends with Scott and Dave Clark and Greg Bear and and you know, I would have been part of that group. I mean, I would have been there and they would have been my people, even though I would not that, that I wasn't that into comic books. Like definitely I would have been connecting with the sci-fi people, mm-hmm. definitely the movie people, definitely the animation people. I would have been just as excited as they were to meet June Foray and Chuck Jones. I mean that was really my seen her as Scott said, tech, tech Avery. I mean, one of the first conversations Scott and I ever had was about tech Avery. And, um, you know, that's so I, I would have been really a, a, a part of that scene. And uh, it, it's been really enjoyable for me to, to communicate with people like Scott and some of these others about those things. I mean, talking to Brink Stevens, you know, who became a scream queen, among other things about, you know, Slumber Party Massacre. I mean, I have a Slumber Party Massacre shirt. And then yeah. suddenly I'm working with Brink Stevens. I mean, it's just awesome. So, you know, there's the star f- aspect of it, of course, you know, but I'm used to that. I interview celebrities all the time. I meet celebrities. I'm friends with some celebrities, etc. But, you know, this was different because it really was something that I could get so into mm-hmm. something I was already getting very interested in because of you are obsolete. So you doing your obsolete first and then going right into this was definitely a really good kind of preparation because it's like, okay, now I'm kind of, in a way, you know, becoming one of these people slash I would have been friends with them when I was younger and I would have been there at the early comic cons for sure doing yeah. a lot of the stuff with everybody because, I mean, those those are my people. Mad Magazine, Twilight Zone, you know, a lot of the shows that Scott was talking about. I mean, I'm sure you guys too. I mean, we, we know yeah. Lost in Space. I mean, to yep. get to talk to Bill Mooney was amazing from Lost in Space and talk to him about Twilight Zone and all this stuff. We only talked over email, but still, I mean, that was just really, really cool. And you know, I, I learned a lot and kind of was able to learn more about Lost in Space or Twilight Zone. You know, when you're hearing Ray Bradbury yelling about why mad magazine is the most important publication
2: yeah Yeah, dude you
3: know and and on our i mean i remember when i heard that in the archival stuff that we were given i'm like we are gonna find a place for this because not only is it really cool and interesting but like you know i I, as someone who's a fan of raids and or and a fan of, of mad magazine of course it's like wow to put those two things together and he's talking about it in such a serious way where he's like there's no liberal A magazine or publication there's no conservative magazine or publication that takes the risks and is as provocative and is as truthful as mad magazine yep you know he's like god damn it like he's like ray bradbury's like angry that more people don't understand how important mad magazine is so to hear stuff like that to be able to use it in our show and to be able to delve more deeply into those kinds of things i mean just you know as as scott said i was going back and forth with greg bear over emails greg's been very supportive and really liked it but I mean, Greg's wife is Astrid, you know, Anderson, and her dad is Paul Anderson, and it's like I know who those people are, and I, and so to just get to be in emails with with Astrid and Greg, you know, because Greg would always CC Astrid because Astrid's really into our show too. I, I wish we had talked to her, I, you know, I didn't even think about it at the time, but um, the point is, it's just it's been really great to become involved in this community more, become friends with these people, to learn from them, to talk with them. And you know we're not just talking about Comic Con begins or this project. Well, you know we recommend movies to each other and yeah. hey, check this out or whatever it is. I'll send a picture or something to somebody, you know, Valentina, like I said, or Scott or whomever. So it's been great.
2: Yeah. Not just comic book match. Is there anything else you're working on?
3: Um. Well, Comic Con begins did just come out. We still have three more episodes that are going to be running. Although by the time this this episode that you guys are doing right now runs, we'll probably be down to two. Um, there have been some discussions about possibly adapting it or doing a version of it for like a, like a, like an actual film or visual documentary, um, as well as possibly a book. Um, you know, I definitely, we have so much material and there's so many great stories that there's definitely enough material for other, you know, uh, content like that. And, you know, I feel very grateful to Sirius XM and the team, Rob Schulte, Chris Tyler, Jane. James Billadou Max, and some of the other people who worked on it with us, but you know, the reality is, I think that we can reach a lot more people with something like a movie or something like that. And I'd really like to get that out there. Plus, it would bring back traffic to the podcast. So I do hope we can do that. But those discussions are going on right now. Nice. Um, and I actually have a new middle grade reader coming out through the same company that put out the audiobook version of the Kids of Whitney High book, which you guys had me on. Blackstone is putting out a book of mine at the end of September. It's just literally just going to be an audiobook, which will be interesting called so good to be bad. Um, it is about a topsy Scott. I think you'll appreciate this. It's about a topsy turvy world where good is bad and bad is good. And there is a really good kid. Who's the main character who is so good that he gets sent away to a rehabilitation camp. And it's (laughs) like a reeducation camp for good kids to teach them how to be bad. And of course, whilst there, he meets other good kids for the first time in his life. He's never met other good kids. And it, it becomes one of those sort of Goonies type misfit, the like oh, yeah. group of kids thing. And together they realize, A, they need to get out of this camp and B maybe being good is the right way to be, you know? And so, but I had a lot of fun. It's very cartoonish and there's a lot of scatological humor. I really went for it with this one. In fact, I'm surprised they bought it because <laughs> I really just kind of went crazy with it. And, um, I had a lot of fun with it, but that, that it's so good to be bad. That comes out at the end of September. Um, and uh, working with that, that woman in LA, Beth Piedis, who created Uncabaret and kind of was part of the big alt comedy scene of the nineties and early two thousands. Um, we have an audio book coming out as well. I think in January where she talked to a lot of comedians about choices they've made in their life. She got some great people, Bob Odenkirk, and a lot of friends of hers, you know, Sandra Bernard and Judy gold and Margaret show and people like that. Um, so we're really excited about that coming out. A few other things that I'm working on. I mean, I'm always picking out a few things. You know, I'm sure Scott can agree with this. And any of you guys who are freelance creatives and whatnot, you have to be working on a million things. I mean, I literally wrote So Good to Be Bad while I was finishing working on Comic-Con Begins, while I was writing a script with a friend of mine about Nancy Reagan that we're still working on and developing and that we really mm-hmm. like. I, I had some crazy ideas for that that turned out to be very similar to what they did for um what's that Marvel comic show that came out uh, that uh, it's like TV, like, Bonavision. I, Bonavision.
2: Bonavision. yeah
3: yeah. We were we had this idea of doing the story of of Nancy Reagan like a series of different like sitcoms or movies or things like playing in all these cliches since her whole life was 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 you know such a series of TV shows and movies and things she was sort of inventing a persona and you know some people really liked it literally like two weeks later people were talking about WandaVision and they're like damn it <laughs> yeah well we were also like see we're right I mean it could work it could be yeah. done so you know hopefully not too many people are listening to the podcast by this point and my partner's probably gonna kill me by giving it away but we, we've been we've been working on <laughs> that actually...
2: long bleep the yeah that?
3: <laughs> the, the point is you know even while I was working on Comic-Con Begins I had to be doing all these other things because A you the money but B you know also probably like Scott and you guys, a lot of people listening to this, like, I can't just work on one thing. I got to do a bunch of things. And it was nice to be able to kind of take breaks from Comic-Con Begins and work on my children's book about this crazy world where good is bad and bad is good. So, um, yeah. And anyone can see any of my stuff on my website, MatthewClickstein.com with one T. And I have some of the sort of up and coming things coming Nice. so uh, yeah as well but thank you nice for letting shit. me talk about that shit and plug some of my crap
1: <laughs> love it matt, can you tell us what are you currently working on well like like matt said i'm
0: i'm juggling a bunch of different things i'm uh, producing a 90 second uh cartoon a promotional cartoon uh to promote two children's books that i wrote and illustrated or helped write and illustrated i'm doing some background layouts, nice now. but um, that's kind of I'm almost done with my part in that, and then I just have to be dealing with the client. I'm also working on my oddball comics book, which uh, Tomorrow's will be publishing at some future date. Between between Trump and and uh, the uh, pandemic, it got really really stalled, but this has given me more time to find more weird stuff. Nice. It's a 200 page full color book about the the uh, strangest comic books ever published.
2: Oh, sweet. Um,
0: and I've been doing that at comic shows since the 1970s, so I've I've got quite a you know reputation for doing that. I'm also working on a new comics project for um, David Lloyd's uh, online comic series called uh, Aces Weekly, okay. and it has a lot of top uh, cartoonists doing different things. Bill Morrison just did a new Roswell Green Man for that one but I'm doing a whole new car project. It's very different from anything I've ever done. It's uh, called uh, Kilgore Home Nursing. And it's, you know, all the time I spent with my, my problems with my foot, I had a lot of home care nurses. I was pretty much bedbound And I heard all these crazy stories. I mean, they wouldn't identify, but I mean, and I realized these ladies, and they're mostly ladies, walk into people's homes and have no idea what to prepare for. It could be a weird religious cult. It could be a very weird fami- family, uh, relation. I mean, she. many of them said nobody puts on for nurses. So we see exactly what's going on. Yep. Some of the houses are absolutely filthy. Some of the people are just nuts. Uh, so I'm using all these stories. And, uh, so it's not funny animals. It's not action. It's, a, a, a sarcastic nurse, uh, going from, it's just one of her days, but it's 21 pages long. And I, I, I'm I, going to use it to try to pitch it as a cartoon show because it's it's very different from people what people expect from me because it's much darker and uh, more real probably than anything I've done. But it's still cartoon. Nice. Awesome.
2: That's reminding me. So my full-time job as a therapist and my colleagues and I are always like, we should write a book or do something just to talk about the everyday that... folks just don't know so that would resonate
0: there's a lot of weird stuff out there oh and by the way i'm also doing uh commissions so if anybody's interested in a commission from me please contact me at shawcartoons all one word at gmail.com
2: awesome well scott uh matt just texted me said his battery died and his cable's nowhere to be found so he said to say thank you and to the rest of us good show um god we really appreciate it buddy <laughs> we really appreciate thank your time you. man thank you so much hey,
0: Well, thanks this is a pleasure yeah. and, uh, very nice, nice
2: meeting you sir Well,
0: nice meeting all of you and i hope we get to see each other face to face at a show sometime heck yeah absolutely take care All right. You guys do too. Thanks. Stay safe. We'll see
1: you. Bye. That was a great, great episode. So, such a full and colorful and hilarious, you know, storytelling with these great guys. uh, All in one. And the great. uh, The two of them are really great and are so passionate about this kind of, uh, this material and the material that they cover. And they're so passionate about it. And it's so great to talk about, talk with two guys that are so enthusiastic about the work so it was great talking to Matthew and Scott and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from them and it was a great episode once again
2: I would definitely hit up Matt on his website Matthew Clickstein with one t uh to uh follow some of the stuff he's working on and then really cool I might be getting Mark another Christmas present Scott Shaw's email check it out he's doing commissions man one of the best
1: sounds good.
2: The only thing I'll add is I just really appreciated the creativity. Like I never really thought of comic-con as like, you're part of the creative process, but I mean, it was spot on. It was like, you know, people make these costumes, people are obviously there to promote their creations and you as a consumer and a participant is kind of part of the heart and soul of, of comic-con. So I really, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation we had with the, with the fellows. Heck yeah. Well, another badass episode boys until next time don't forget to bag your board this is rich this is mark this is rob really appreciate you guys checking out the podcast um if you want stickers you can hit us up on heroes Homebase podcast at gmail give us your contact information we'll be happy to send you some of those and please like subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice and leave us a comment let us know what uh how we're doing do we suck why Are we fantastic? Why? Um, Is there some content that you would like the three of us to shoot around? So again, thank you so much for letting us live in your ears for the last hour and a half. So take care. Thank you, as always, for listening and supporting this RMR production.
0: Hi, this is uh, Scott Shaw, uh, also known as The Turd, here to welcome you to the Heroes Homecast. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> there we go. See, right. yeah, I told you. I told you. Yeah. I oh, love it. I love <laughs> it. i have a little more of this, and then I'll keep going. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take two. I'm more funny when I fuck up than when yes. I'm funny. So it's it's, that should be my new shtick.
2: Our podcast is Heroes' Home Base. We're just gonna have some fun, man. We're you. It's laid back. Uh, you can say fuck, you can say shit, whatever you want to do. You um, can't say fuck shit though. That's the way you get kicked out. Okay. Okay. Shit. Fuck. How about that? Is that <laughs> <you go>. better? <laughs> so yeah just laid back we'll uh that no
0: i i never worry about that stuff i really perfect find out you're, you're you're in for trouble <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna fit right in right well i'll tell you i got my hair cut short when i realized that that kept the cops off my back no. <laughs> and the wah, second wah. thing i realized is wouldn't it be nice if everybody could get the cops off their back by getting a haircut yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then after a while i realized geez this is so much easier i i don't have split ends i don't have and and now that i'm old I can scare guys, they're assholes, because I look like a c- retired cop or a <laughs> military guy gone bad. Sitting on a f-ing milk crate.
1: <laughs> so it is sometimes.
2: So you have, like, diamond checkers in your ass right now? Yes. Can you even feel your ass right now? No. It's about right.